John the John the Baptist. It's where all the gospel writers begin with the ministry of Jesus. Is that the, the John John the Baptist? Um, Think back. Who, who remembers sort of the um, main point we said of that of that section, chapter one, verses nineteen through twenty-eight, is where we were last week. Skim through, and it was the testimony of John. It's where he gets all these questions: Are you Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. Um, what was the main point we said of that that whole section? So that whole section, what John is doing is he is defending his authority to baptize, and he's proclaiming his identity. But in all of this, that they're asking these questions about himself, but even his answers about his identity and his authority, it's all directed to Christ. And we said that John really gives us the model for what it looks like for the truths of verses 118 to really take root in the heart. I really come face to face with Christ and his glory. It's the only proper response. It's him. It's him. I'm a pointer. And that's all John was. He's a, a pointer to um, Messiah. Anything else? Or did someone else? Well, this morning, we come to um, this next section, in verses 29 through 34. And John will tell us just how he came to know the identity of this one, of the Christ that he was sent to point to. This section is going to show us why John came baptizing with water. That was a question that wasn't answered in the previous section. Why specifically is he baptizing? This section also is going to tell us where John's authority came from. Another question that wasn't specifically answered in the previous section. Where specifically does his authority come from? It will tell us just who, what's the identity of this one that John has come before to point to? Who is this? Um, So you look back at verses 19 to 28, John responds to the inquiry of the Jewish leadership by declaring his own identity. And this morning, John's going to respond to the sight of Jesus by declaring his identity. So that's what the whole point of this section is, is the identity of Christ. So if John is a pointer to Messiah. John is a pointer to the one greater than him. Um, then the question is, is what is the identity? Who is it specifically and what kind of person is it going to be? And that's what this section is going to tell us this morning. So let's read it, beginning in verse 29-34. It says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself do not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and afford witness that this is the Son of God. So in these verses we will get um, John's three Christ-exalting responses to the sight of Jesus Notice verse 29 begins saying, on that, on the next day, right? So this event happens the day immediately following what we just saw last week, where the Jewish leadership comes to him and asks him questions the very next day. What's very interesting is that every section in chapter 1 begins with another, with the next day. Uh, we get six days total. This is the first week of Christ's ministry. So verse 19 is day one. The Jewish leadership comes to him. Then verse 29, where we are this morning, the next day, he sees Jesus. Then verse 35, the next day, John is standing with his disciples. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And then chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, meaning on the third day following verse 43. So what we have here is six days um, in successive order. This is the first week, in other words, of Christ's public ministry immediately following his baptism and temptation. Um, so all the other Gospels record Jesus' baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. John doesn't record that. He assumes it. He picks up immediately following that, after Jesus is returning um, from his temptation in, in the wilderness. So we get one week, the first week. So what happens in this first week of Jesus' ministry? John proclaims the identity of Jesus, and he points his disciples away from himself to Jesus. And Jesus comes onto the scene, calling his disciples to himself and revealing his identity more and more. In other words, the whole point of this section is the identity of Christ. That's what we're after. Who is he? What is he like? Before we move on, I want to point out one more thing about sort of the structure of this, this first section of John. Remember we talked back in, in Proverbs, we said that there, there's meaning behind the organization of, of books. Structure has purpose. We're not just doing this for an academic exercise. Um, when we see how John has organized his material, we're going to see the main point, what John is trying to communicate to us. So this first section spans from chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to the end of chapter 4, verse 54. It's often referred to as the Cana cycle. It's because it is organized around two trips of Jesus from Judea to Cana of Galilee. And I want to show you that really, really quickly. What happens in Judea is that his identity is proclaimed. It's going to be proclaimed here. And then he immediately goes to Cana of Galilee and performs a sign which pictures and confirms that his identity that was proclaimed in Judea. And it happens twice. So look here in verse 28 of chapter 1. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. It's in Judea. Flip over to chapter 2 verse 1. On the third day when he was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Then chapter 2 verse 13 Passover Jews was at hand. He goes back to Jerusalem, Judea. And then that section spans quite a, quite a distance. He travels back to Galilee in chapter 4 through Samaria to arrive back, not just in Galilee, but in Cana, verse 46 of chapter 4. 
So again, he came to Cana in Galilee, and he performs what? Another sign. So we get these two cycles, and just in case you missed it, look at verse 54 of chapter 4. It says, this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Cana. So that's what this first section is, and we're just beginning it. And again, that helps us to know that what are we looking for now as we're studying this section about John? The whole point is the identity of Christ. That is going to be the main application, and that's what we're after. And it's got tons of implications for our lives. So that's where we are. So let's begin looking at the first um, Christ-exalting response. Any questions before we, before we dive in here? Question about the organization of that? Does that make sense? <clears throat> let's begin. Look at his first Christ-exalting response. He declares the identity of Jesus. Verse 29 says he sees Jesus coming toward him. Now, in our minds, the words Jesus and Christ, or Jesus and Messiah, are inseparable. That's what we think. Jesus is the Christ. The Christ is, is Jesus, of course. Um, at this point, the Christ, the Messiah, has not yet been publicly identified. He is still hidden. He has not been publicly made known. Look back in verse 26. John tells the authorities, chapter 1, verse 26, Among you stands one you do not know. He's still hidden. At this point, the Messiah has not been publicly identified. Jesus looks just like any other man. He's hidden and unknown. And what John is doing here is he's going to identify the Messiah. So it's going to be unmistakable. What we see here, it says he saw Jesus coming to him. And John says it's that one. That's the one. That's the Messiah. That's the coming one. The rest of this section is going to give us two things. It's going to specify the identity of Jesus. Just who is he? What kind of Messiah is he going to be? And it's going to also tell us how John came to know this for certain. How did John know he was the Messiah? We get both of those in this section. So what is it he declares about Jesus? What's the first thing? You, you tell me. He says, behold, he is the, the Lamb. God. Look at verse 29. He sees Jesus coming toward him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, Look. Pay attention. Look at him. And the first thing that John says out of all the things he could have said about Messiah is what? The Lamb of God. Now the modern ears of Christians um, again we think, well, of course, Messiah and Lamb of God, they go together. I mean, the central mission of Messiah was what? To die as a sacrificial lamb on the cross. Of course, these go together. That's not very surprising. Um, but um, before the cross and the resurrection, that this was what the Messiah was going to do, uh, was not what was on the front of their, of their, of their minds. It was not, they, they wouldn't have connected these two things. They think Messiah, they think conquering king. They think king that is going to come slay the Romans. They think king that's going to dominate, not one that's going to lay down as a sacrificial lamb. This is not what would have been thought of when they heard Messiah. But here John identifies Jesus as the lamb of God in the next verses as the Messiah. He brings the two together. 
So the question is, does John grasp the full extent of Messiah here? I mean, does John know all that he means by he's the Lamb of God? And I say, I don't know. I say, probably, probably not. As we see in the Gospel of John, a lot of the characters speak better than they know. Um, they, 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 te- they, they testify to something that, that's true, and yet it's clouded with misunderstanding. And only after the cross and resurrection do they really come to know the full significance. It's probably going on here. John knows something of the identity of Jesus, something of the function and mission of, of Jesus. And yet, nevertheless, he identifies just who Jesus is going to be. And after cross-resurrection, we, we know the full story. We know the full significance of this, this term. So the question is, what does John mean by the Lamb of God? Um, like I said earlier, the phrase sounds so familiar to us that we just sort of take it for granted. Um, but this phrase is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not found anywhere in intertestamental Jewish writings, which has led a lot of people to think, well, where did this come from? What's the background of this Lamb of God? What is John talking about here? Um, as far as we know, the phrase originated with John the Baptist. It was his phrase. So the question is, well, what Lamb does John refer to? What does he mean by Jesus is the Lamb of, of God? And there's been a number of options written on this. Some people say that it refers to the Passover lamb. He's the lamb of God. He's the Passover lamb. Certainly a big theme in the Gospel of John. Others suggest it's the Isaiah 53, 7 lamb. The lamb before its shears is silent. Others think it's the lamb that God would provide. Think back to Genesis 22 and the binding of Isaac. This is the lamb that God would provide. Others think it's an apocalyptic warrior-like lamb, like you get in the prophets. So not a lamb that lays down its life, but a lamb that comes and devours his enemies. So the question is, what is John talking about here? What does he mean, the lamb of God? Well, let me make a few observations, and I think it will be pretty clear what is going on. First thing we need to point out is the phrase is very general. Like I said before, it's not used anywhere else. It's probably John the Baptist's own phrase. And therefore, we shouldn't try to force it to be too specific, as though it's the Passover lamb or another specific one. Yeah. In the Old Testament, wasn't the um, sacrifice for the atonement of sin uh, a lamb? It was a lamb, yes. So, so it's not the, the, the word lamb, but this phrase, lamb of God. Um, that, that, that is not um, used anywhere else, um, the specific phrase. Uh, but that's a very good observation because that's the, the next point we're going to point out is this word lamb that's used here. The Greek word is amnos. It's used 96 times in the Greek Old Testament, and 85 of those have to do with a sacrificial lamb. Uh, this is the sacrificial lamb word of the Old Testament. So, yeah, that would have been one of the instances um, of it. And look at the phrase that immediately follows this one. What does the lamb of God do? He takes away the sin of the world. So there's a connection between what this lamb would do and sin. In other words, I think it's best to understand this is John's way of saying that the Messiah would be God's final, ultimate, chosen, provided, sacrificial lamb that would fulfill all the other sacrificial lambs before him. 
Leon Morris put it this way. He said, no other lamb than a sacrificial lamb takes away sin. And that is the critical point. The difficulty comes when we try to define the reference with greater precision. John intended by the expression to express his conviction that in Jesus Christ there is fulfilled all that is foreshadowed in all of the sacrifices. The term is sacrificial, but it refuses to be bound by any sacrifice. And we're going to see that through John. You're probably familiar with John. One of the significant things about the Gospel of John is all the feasts, right? Jesus goes to the feasts, and the point is he's fulfilling all these things. The worship of the Old Testament is fulfilled in him. All the sacrifices are fulfilled in him. All the feasts are fulfilled in him. So let's just summarize what, what this means really quick, and here's where you got some blanks on your outline if you have a pen. Um, what does John mean here by the, the Lamb of God? First thing I'd say is that Jesus' Messiahship would involve the substitutionary sacrifice of himself at his core. The substitutionary sacrifice of himself at the the core. That's what his Messiahship would include. All the Old Testament sacrificial lambs were substitutionary. Second, Jesus is God's lamb because he is perfect and chosen. He's sinless and provided. Perfect and chosen by God. Lambs were always a symbol for purity and sinlessness. Hold your hand here and go to 1 John with me, if you would. We're going to be going to 1 John um, a number of times this morning. There's some parallel references. But 1 John chapter 3, John says something very, very similar here. Our point is that he is, Lamb of God means he's perfect. He's the exact one that God is satisfied with, the only kind of sinless. And he's provided by God for this purpose. 1 John 3, and look at verse 5. Listen to how similar this verse sounds. You know that he appeared. the same word that's used by John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized so that he would be revealed. same word appeared. He was revealed. He appeared. Why? To take away sins. Same word. And look what it says next. And in him... There is no sin. Jesus is the perfect, spotless sacrifice by God. Number three, he will make an end to the world's sin problem. He will make an end to the world's sin problem. Sin is our greatest problem. In general, Israel thought their greatest problem was political. Um, Our culture thinks our greatest problem is socioeconomics or psychological or something else. Our greatest problem is sin. We need this kind of Messiah. This is what Messiah came to deal with first and foremost. Which is why John's baptism was so important, right? What was the purpose of John's baptism? It was call Israel to do what? To recognize... They're sinners and to repent. To prepare for the sacrificial lamb. I say just by way of implication that until Israel and until we see that our greatest problem is sin, 
we will not embrace Jesus as the kind of Messiah that he came to be. And to the extent that I embrace him as this, or flip around, the extent that I don't embrace him as this, is the same extent that I have ceased to realize that this is my greatest need. Which prepares us for for the next uh, point here on your on your outline. What does it mean to take away sin? The verb here means to pick up or, or carry away, to, to remove something. And so first, as being a sacrificial lamb means he removes the penalty for sin by completely satisfying the Father's demand for a sacrifice for sin. He removes the penalty for sin. By satisfying the Father's demand for a sacrifice. His sacrifice cleanses from from guilt. John's baptism was a ritual form of purification. We're going to see that throughout the Gospel of John. It did not cleanse sin. It was symbolic. It pointed to something. It looked forward to the final purification that would come through the Lamb. What he accomplished. Um... Look at the next point. You can see those references on your own. First John 1, 7 and 2, 2. But look at number 2. Through his death, he removes not only the penalty for sin, but the power and presence of sin from the lives of believers. What does it mean that he takes away sin? He removes our guilt by his death. And he removes the power and presence of sin from the lives of believers. And this is where I want you to go back to First John, where we were before, chapter 3. Verse 5, as John explains this again. 1 John 3, verse verse 4. Here's our problem right here. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Drop your eyes down to verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works What does it mean that the Lamb of God takes away sin? It's not just he forgives your sin. He does. But he removes the power of sin from your life through the new birth, through the Holy Spirit that he's going to give you. We're going to see later this morning. It's broken the power of sin in in your lives and the presence of sin is being removed. This is what we need. This is what the world needs. It's this kind of Messiah. So the final question is, what does it mean by he takes away the sin of the world? Is this universal atonement? Is this everybody's sin is being atoned for in the same way? No. In John, the world um, has a few, few meanings. First is that his atonement is comprehensive in nature. It is not for the Jews only, but for who? But for all mankind. You're in 1 John still. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Very similar statement. He is the propitiation for our sins, the wrath absorber for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
He is the Messiah, not just for the Jew, but for all mankind. Second, his atonement is for the sake of this rebellious world, which is enslaved to sin. When you think of world, don't think of every single person that lives on the globe. The, the world is not merely the place people live. It is this world system, which is in opposition to God. John 3 says, the light came to the world, and the world did what? They loved darkness, not the light. And it's just an amazing display of God's love. You hear John 3, 16, God so loved the world. The point of that verse is this world that is in opposition to God, that loves darkness, that hates God. That is the one for whom the Lamb of God came to lay down his life to remove their sin. The rebellious world which is enslaved to sin. Third, his atonement is for those who have been called out from the world. Jesus says he lays his life down for who? For his sheep. Well, who are his sheep? His sheep are those the Father gave to him. He specifically, in a special way, laid his life down for the sheep in order to remove their sin. And if you're a believer, it's evidence that you are his sheep. How do I, how do I summarize this? Jesus, as the Messiah, has come primarily to deal with the world's sin problem. Not first through judgment. That's what I would have done. That's what the Jews expected he would have done to their enemies. <laughs> but through the sacrificial offering of himself as the sinless chosen Lamb of God. It's amazing. This is the glory of Christ. And yes, this is familiar. Yes, we've heard this a thousand times. But we need to hear it again this morning. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But before we do, look at the next point. John goes on to declare that he's not only the Lamb of God, but he's the Supreme One who comes last. Look at verse 30. He says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John here refers back to a time, it's not recorded in the Gospel of John, but a previous time that he declared about the coming one. And we've already heard it. We heard it back in verse 15. We heard it back in verse 27. Something very similar. In other words, this is what John has been doing from day one in his ministry. The greater one's coming. The last one is the greatest. He's after me, but he's better than me. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And this verse here tells us that the one John has been pointing to from day one is none other than Jesus. It's him. And he is the Lamb of God. John is not... Uh, Jesus is not someone in addition to the coming one John has been pointing to. He is the one. He is the Messiah. And look at how John describes him here. He says, after me comes who? Comes a man. The Greek there is the word aner. It means a masculine, male human being. Um, John, which is so clear in the deity of Christ, is so clear. Here in his humanity. He was a real man. So much so that he looked just like everybody else. He was undistinguishable, except he was without sin, um, which is probably why his brothers hated him so much. And John says next that he's become superior to me because he was before me. He was a real man. He was superior to John. The 
point being, I think, is that his purification that he offers is going to be superior to anything John the Baptist had. So just these two verses, we get a really rich Christology. That's what John's after. The coming one, prophesied by Isaiah, prepared for by John, is none other than Jesus. He's a real man. He existed eternally. His mission was to accomplish the removal of the world's sin. And the way he would do it is by becoming a sacrificial lamb. The only ones who treasure this kind of Messiah are those who have come to grasp the reality of their own sinful condition. So question for me, question for you is, do I treasure him? Do I genuinely treasure him? My biggest problem is not financial. My biggest problem is not medical. My biggest problem is not all these things the world tells me my problem. My biggest problem is on my own. I am enslaved to sin and I am under the just wrath of God. That is why I'm a And the world, TV, radio, everything out there never tells you that. It tells you your problem is something else. Um, it's as though a tsunami is coming and your house is built on the beachfront and the world tells you just clean your house, decorate your house, make your house. Your biggest problem is the dirt on the floor, scrub your floors. It's going to be obliterated. It's all the world cares about. And John came and Jesus came because we have a big problem. And it's sin. No one thinks that's their problem. Except believers. The point for us is that it doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever this morning, or you're a new believer, or you've been a believer for 20 years. You need this kind of Messiah. You still need this kind of Messiah. Um, the point is to treasure him. If you're in our men's group yesterday, we were going through Thomas Watson just talking about treasuring Christ, and loving Christ, embracing Christ. Um, that's what it means to be a believer. That's the goal of our, our, our lives. To come to know him more, treasure him more, cling to him more for what he has done. So never cease to feel your need, your desperate need for this kind of Messiah. Never cease to feel astonished gratitude that God became a man to die as a sacrificial lamb to take care of your biggest problem, even though you're part of the world that hates him. It's amazing. that's the identity of Jesus proclaimed by John, but we still have a question. That's, well, how, John, did you come to know that that is the identity of Messiah? Well, that's what verses 32 to 33 tell us. The Messiah's identity was revealed to John through the Spirit's descent. Let's read it. Verse 32. And John bore, uh, I'm sorry, verse um, 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So let's just go through this really quickly. The first thing we get is John's testimony. Look at verse 32. It says, John bore witness. This is the second of three times we see John bearing witness. In other words, this is eyewitness testimony here. 
And later in the Gospel of John, Jesus goes back to the testimony of John and all the other witnesses that bore witness to Christ. We are accountable for John's words right here. His eyewitness testimony. But what did he see? He saw the Spirit's descent. The Spirit descended and remained on Messiah. John's referring to an earlier occasion. We know from the other Gospels this was at Jesus' baptism that this happened. And we're told that this was the Father's sign to John. The Father who sent John said to John, the one that you see this happen to, that's the, that is the one who baptized with the Spirit. That's the Messiah. So the question that you're probably asking, that I asked when I studied this, is what is so significant about the Spirit descending and remaining on him? Why, of all the things that could be a sign, why is that the sign of Messiah? Um, why would the Father give that to him as a sign? What does it mean the Spirit would descend on him? Well, think back to the Old Testament. Um, you see the Spirit coming upon various people in the Old Testament, and you're probably aware of why. Um, think of the book of Judges, think King Saul. Um, what was the purpose? Remember? I'm sure you know the, the answer is to do what? To equip them for the task that God has had for them. Leading the nation, uh, carrying out his plan, whatever, whatever it was. Um, but it's especially characteristic of God's chosen king. So remember when Samuel comes to David, he does what? He anoints him with oil. And listen to 1 Samuel 16, 13. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forth. In other words, the anointing oil was symbolic of the anointing of the Spirit to empower the Davidic king to carry out God's plan for the nation. In fact, the title Messiah means what? Means anointed. That's what Messiah means. He's anointed not just with oil, but with the Spirit of God. Um, it's the one, it's the Davidic king who would carry out God's promises to the nation of Israel. So flip back with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61. Look at a few Old Testament references here about this work of the Messiah, we're still asking why um, is this the sign? Of all the things that could be a sign of which one the Messiah is, why is this? Look at Isaiah 61. Chapter 61, verse, verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. To bring good news to the poor and sent me to bind up the broken heart. You've heard that verse in Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. It is the sign of Messiah. He's anointed. He's the one given the Spirit of God. Flip back to chapter 11 of Isaiah. Chapter 11. In verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot... From the stump of Jesse, the line of David, the tree's been chopped down in the exile. It looks like it's dead. There's a little sprout that comes up from it. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In other words, this is the final Davidic king who's going to be clothed with the power of God and will fulfill all of God's promises um, to the people of Israel. I'll show you one more verse. Slip over to chapter 42, verse 1. And this is this verse is a lot of connections. Chapter 42, verse, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation. The Gospel of John, the spirit doesn't just descend on Jesus. What does it do? It remains on Jesus. The spirit didn't remain on Saul. Why? He displeased God. It didn't remain on a lot of them because they didn't please God. The spirit remains on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said in John 8, 29, I always do the things pleasing to my Father. Jesus is perfectly pleasing to the Father, and he will accomplish um, the plans. He is the final one. He's it. Which leads us to the last line there in John, um, our section here. Go really quickly for these last couple verses. The Messiah's task. It says, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? He baptizes with the Spirit. I think simply put is that the Messiah is going to usher in the age in which the Spirit um, is given to God's people in a special way. Baptism required a lot of water. That's the point. You have to be submerged in it. It's a ton of water. To be baptized in the Spirit means an abundant supply of the Holy Spirit. That's what Messiah is going to do. We don't have time, but we're going to see through the Gospel of John the significance of the Holy Spirit um, for us. It's the promise of the new covenant. I'm going to give them my spirit. The spirit is the cause of regeneration. The spirit is compared to a spring of living water in you. You're sustained not by water outside of you. You have life within you, the life of God and the soul of man. He equips you with everything you need to do the will of Leon Morris again put it this way, baptism with water had an essentially negative significance. It was a cleansing from sin. But baptism with the Spirit is positive. It is the bestowal of new life in God. In other words, these are the things we need most. We need atonement for our sin, and we need empowerment from the Spirit to change us. And both are provided by the Messiah. Finally, we, verse 34, John bears witness and he says, this is the Son of God. He's the chosen one. He's the one of Isaiah 42, 1, that God delights in. And he will accomplish all the promises which we know includes Isaiah 53. As the real name of God lays his life down for, for us. The question is, what's the application? Okay, Michael, you didn't say anything this morning that I haven't heard before. I'll say, well, that's good. That means you're probably a real believer. <laughs> this, is, this, this is fundamental. So this is Gospel 101. Um, the point of the Gospel of John is he wants you to read it over and over and over again. And let these truths sink in more and more. Like we said from the beginning, the purpose of this Gospel is that you would believe. And that you would behold his glory. When I was uh, preparing for this, I was thinking, was it last year that we had the big solar eclipse? Happened. I think was it two years ago? No way! Wow, that's crazy. So you remember all those little glasses that we had? Uh, you had to get and you go blind if you didn't have them. Um, so 
that's sort of like where we are right now. Before, we didn't even have eyeballs. We, we were blind. We were dead. Um, and at conversion, we're given life. We're given eyes. And uh, But as we behold Christ, it's like we're beholding him through these solar glasses. We, we see his glory. I, I, I see the sun there. It's just, I mean, it's, it's yellow, but it's not shining very bright. And part of our journey, sanctification, is that these lenses would have shade after shade after shade peeled off until finally we stand before him and nothing. That's what we're after. We see him. If you're a believer, you see his glory. The call here is that we would see his glory more and more. I wanted to see it in its brightness and its fullness. And the call is to labor for this. Think about it. Meditate on it. Chew on it. So before I give you um, my applications, my um, thoughts here, um, any thoughts that you have on uh, how this should change our lives, and what the point of it might be. It's not just information. It's not just so we can go out here saying, okay, I know all these truths about Jesus, who he was. It's very important. You need that. But it should make an impact on your life. What do you think? Any thoughts? Excellent. Excellent. That brings us right back to the whole purpose of John, John models for us. Um, and if you've seen the glory of Christ, <laughs> what are you going to do? It's about me in any life. And we're fighting that in this life. Um, it's a preoccupation with him. So it's excellent. And, uh, I was talking to Pastor Farrell yesterday sort of about this, this passage. and He said that, that that's really the evidence of genuine conversions taking place. When you hear a person's testimony, it's all about them. <laughs> Probably hasn't really experienced. Um, but what is the believer going to do? It's Christ. He did it all. He's the Lamb. He's my only hope. He's everything. I want to make much of him. So it's good. Because you've been encouraged to think about John, who saw all of that. And yet later, John's asking, Are, are you one? Yeah. Because I mean, he did. You know, he did. And so it's encouraging for me to know that. I know as much or more as John. Yeah. And yet I still sometimes kind of stumble and say, you the one, I mean, I live my life sometimes in a way that, that isn't in light of all that knowledge. Yep. So it's good. I'm, I'm encouraged it's to, good. to realize that we can all stumble. That's right. Even John, who saw the Spirit descend like a dove yeah. on Christ. I think it's easy to say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's probably going on in John's mind is, Suffering that's going on in his life and the suffering that's going on for Messiah is like it's not supposed to work this way. Yeah, is, is this really? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And I think we we, we get sucked into that too in, in our culture. You're not, you're not supposed to suffer. God doesn't want you to suffer. That's the pathway of discipleship. That's the pathway of Messiah. Um, and, uh, and yet there's hope. This is the way. Anything else? Yeah. Can you say the blanks on uh, yes number one and two? Um, under numbers, under point three. Uh, or, under or Roman numeral three. Point two or point. Yeah, what does it mean that Jesus takes away the sin of the world? Number one and two. Okay, uh, through his death, he removes the penalty for sin. Oh no, the next one. Next one. Number three. I mean, <laughs> the, uh, the atonement. Okay, for all mankind. Right. Not for Jews, only all mankind. And then his atonement is for the sake of this rebellious world, which is enslaved to sin. 
as atonement is for those who have been called out from the world. Alright. So, well, we are out of out of time. Um, so, any more questions, comments, um, remarks? We're on very familiar ground, and the temptation is to uh, treat a tip. Um, the call is to see if we want the glory. This is the eternal God, the man, your sin. Good question. Yes. It might take a while to answer, but okay. throughout the right entire New Testament, there's always suffering for Christ. Where did the prosperity gospel of origin? The devil. Not like, like, not like what time period, you know? My guess is that it has always been around in church history. Um, but as far as in America goes, um, I think around the... Uh, I would say around the Second Great Awakening, late 1800s, where you get a lot of um, where the gospel is diluted. And it's very man-centered, and then you get a lot of um, charismatic theology start inundating the church and everything. It's all sort of coming out of, of that whole time period. And the gospel becomes man-centered, really. First Great Awakening was very God-centered. Second Great Awakening, it was, uh, it was really diluted. It was, it was man. So Finney and, and all those people. So I would say maybe that's part of the roots. But it's probably always been here. It's excellent. All right, let me pray. Let you guys go. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. For its truth, help us, Lord, to behold the glory of Christ. Toward God. Prepare us, Lord, for the service to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Alright, guys, you are dismissed. So.